Mai Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And if you ask the average person who's the main character of the Lord of the Rings, they're almost certainly going to say Frodo or maybe Sam, because they're the ones that are A, through most of the entire story, and they're pretty clearly the main protagonists. But if you ask somebody the follow-up question, okay, but which character is present in literally every chapter? They're not going to have an answer, because there is no character who's present in every chapter of the story, because after a certain point, Frodo and Sam get separated from everybody else, and then you have whole sections of books where you only deal with one group, and then you switch back to Frodo and Sam... So you can't follow one person through the entire story in literally every chapter. But, Middle-earth is in every chapter, pretty much. There's not always a huge description of landscapes or whatever, but they're always in Middle-earth, and there's always something in the backdrop that gives you some mood or some sense of what's going on and the way that the characters are thinking about what's going on around them. And I'm not the first person to notice this, obviously. Many people have made this kind of comment before, but I wanted to take this opportunity to point out some of the more interesting examples of places in The Lord of the Rings where Tolkien describes the landscape or some other aspect of Middle-earth and really gives it not just a, a lot of description, but almost makes Middle-earth a character, a personality. Uh, one of the things that really made this uh, an idea to me was listening along to the Tolkien professors exploring the Lord of the Rings, where he's talking about Caradhras, and he mentions the fact that it speaks of the mountain's knees, as if the mountain is a person who's kind of sitting there with a lap. And, you know, it, it called to mind a bunch of other passages in the Lord of the Rings where similar things happen. Not always quite so explicitly... Uh, anthropomorphic, but nevertheless, in many cases, there are words used that give the land a personality. It's a presence beyond just, you know, that's the trees and the landscape and the, you know, whatever is out there. So I want to take a look at some of them. And obviously, I'm not going to be able to cover all of them. There are many, many passages. So I just picked the ones that stuck out in my mind as being some of the more prominent that I could, you know, kind of chop up and do in a relatively efficient manner. So let's take a look at some of my favorite examples, starting from the very beginning of the book and working forward. So before we even get into the main text of The Lord of the Rings, we have the prologue, which tells us a little bit about the history of the Shire. And this is not a great example, but it sets up a little bit of what we can expect further in the story. Tolkien in the prologue tells us, the land was rich and kindly, and though it had long been deserted when they entered it, it had before been well tilled, and there the king had once had many farms, cornlands, vineyards, and woods. Now, the main word here that's useful to our purpose is kindly. The land was kindly. Now, what this means, of course, is that it tends to be well watered when it needs to be. It tends to have pretty good weather, this kind of thing. But to use that specific word to mean that is again, moving in the direction of personification. And this is just a really minor example, but again, it sets up what comes later. And there's many, many good examples that come. 
and some of them have a lot of text to them. For example, when we're leaving Weathertop, we get a description of the land that they are entering, and it says, The land before them sloped away southwards, but it was wild and pathless. Bushes and stunted trees grew in dense patches with wide barren spaces in between. The grass was scanty, coarse, and gray, and the leaves in the thickets were faded and falling. It was a cheerless land, and their journey was slow and gloomy. Now, the again, there's not really a whole lot of anything anthropomorphic in this passage, but look at some of the words. The trees are stunted. Something's not quite right about the, the soil here, maybe, and that's why the trees aren't growing that well. And that might also explain why the grass is scanty. And the leaves in the thickets were faded and falling. Now, it is autumn, so that could be, you know, merely an, an aspect of the time of the year it is. But it says it was a cheerless land. There's nothing nice or, you know, enjoyable about it. So it's it's a, a territory that is not particularly suited to, let's say, a, a not a joy ride because they're not riding, but, a, you know, just a Sunday walk or a hobbit walking party, we might say. But we get this sense that, you know, they've they've just left Weathertop after Frodo has been stabbed, and to him every everything is going to seem kind of worse than it is anyway. But the land here is already gloomy. It's not inviting. It's you know, it, there's something about it that just is somewhat off-putting, and this. Territory gets a description in The Hobbit, too, which is kind of reminiscent, which I'm not going to get into. You can find that passage yourself. But the passage where in The Hobbit they're describing a lot of their journey, and then you get the troll adventure, which comes, you know, they find that spot here after they travel for a while. There's mentions of different aspects of the landscape that sound kind of like this in terms of the mood that it sets. So it's really interesting to see that parallel come through. And of course, this was intentional on Tolkien's part. He realized we're covering a lot of the same ground. I have to describe some of the same kind of stuff. And he manages to do that, although he does it in a very different way in the two books. My next example, and this one is, this one's a really good one in my opinion, when they're going down the Anduin River in the boats that they get in Lothlorien, the hobbits are looking to both sides of the river, and they get very different views. So to their left, which is to the east or towards Mordor, on the eastern bank to their left, they saw long formless slopes stretching up and away towards the sky. Brown and withered they looked, as if fire had passed over them, leaving no living blade of green an unfriendly waste without even a broken tree or a bold stone to relieve the emptiness. What pestilence or war or evil deed of the enemy had so blasted all that region, even Aragorn could not tell. Unfriendly. The land is unfriendly. It's so unfriendly that there's literally nothing there. It's empty. It's gr it's, there's no green. This is why it's called the Brownlands, of course. There's no grass, no trees, no nothing. There's not even a boulder it's like at least a boulder, even though it's not green, would kind of relieve the bareness of the landscape. But there's not even that. It's like, what happened? It's just nothing. It's like a Martian landscape, almost. But then, on the right, upon the west to the right, the land was treeless also. But it was flat and in many places green with wide plains of grass. Here and there, through openings, Frodo could catch sudden glimpses of rolling meads. 
Rolling Meads. That's an interesting word to choose. You could just say Rolling Hills or, you know, something like that. But Rolling Mead is interesting. And I don't know if this is intentional, but Mead has two meanings. Here, of course, it's referring to the grasslands. But Mead is also the alcoholic beverage which forms the basis of the Mead Hall, which is basically what Theoden's Hall is. It's a Mead Hall. And what does a Mead Hall bring to mind? Raucous parties and, you know, getting lots of alcohol and celebrations. That's kind of what those are for. So that already inspires a much more happy or merry connotation to what we're looking at. But it goes on. And far beyond them hills in the sunset, and away on the edge of sight a dark line where march the southernmost ranks of the Misty Mountains. And there again we get a little bit of an anthropomorphization because it says the Misty Mountains marched. Mountains don't march, but I mean you can say the marches of or something like that, but it's it's again giving that sense of this is the last part where they're kind of marching along and it makes it sound a little more human than mountain. There is no sign of living, moving things save birds. Of these, there were many, small fowl whistling and piping in the reeds, but they were seldom seen. And then, at one point, they actually get swans overhead. <laughs> and Aragorn, after Sam says, Swans, and they're really big, and, he, and Aragorn says, And they are black swans. The way he says that is kind of ominous. It's not exactly clear what he means by that, and... It's not clear that it's connected to the land per se, but in this context of there's not a whole lot around, just birds, and on the left is a barren land, and on the right is Rohan, but still nothing really besides birds, and they're black swans. Sounds kind of like, eh, there's something a little off here. Uh, And then we get some comments from Frodo, he says, how wide and empty and mournful all this country looks, and he's referring to the to the left side. But then later, and again, that that word mournful, it's wide and empty, but it's also mournful. It's like it's it's sad just to look at it. But then we get some more description uh, from Aragorn of Rohan. He said, it is a rich and pleasant land, and its grass has no rival. It's not only rich, it's pleasant. Not quite a personification, but again, it kind of calls that to mind that we already got. The idea that there's a lot of grass as opposed to the left side. We get this really stark contrast going. And then we get some final thoughts from Sam. Sam looked from bank to bank uneasily. The trees had seemed hostile before, as if they harbored secret eyes and lurking dangers. And there again, we almost get a personification, because the trees that they had passed through before... Some of those would have been trees on the outskirts of Lothlorien. You wouldn't think they would be all that bad, but once you get out of Lothlorien proper, it seemed that Sam thought that the trees were hostile. You can't be a hostile tree. Well, actually, in Middle-earth you can, (laughs) as we know from the Old Forest and Fangorn, but Sam here is just not thinking in terms of literal walking trees. He's thinking in terms of the harboring of secret eyes and lurking dangers. You know, they can just hide things. People hide behind trees. But using this kind of terminology about the trees, that the trees themselves are hostile, you know, that is kind of an anthropomorphization. And 
He says now he wished that the trees were still there. He felt that the company was too naked, afloat in little open boats in the midst of shelterless lands and on a river that was the frontier of war. So, here again, it, it doesn't explicitly call forth the contrast here, but it's kind of implicit, the frontier of war. Why does he feel like it's the frontier of war? Well, Aragorn's kind of filled him in a little bit, because there was a little bit in there about that I left out about the fact that orcs are on one side and they, you know, raid to get horses from Rohan occasionally. But also, the frontier is going to look something like this. There's going to be a line, and on one side it's going to look like this, and on the other side it's going to look like that. And the Brownlands is kind of a no-man's-land look. You know, if you think about World War One, there's this idea that, you know, you have your trenches, and then in between, it's just a desolate waste because artillery and gunfire has just leveled everything. And then tanks to boot. You know, you just, there's nothing there. So it just looks like the frontier of war, in a sense. On one side, there's a place where war doesn't really happen exactly. You have raids into that territory, but on the other side, it's it looks like war has passed over it and nothing is growing. So, again, it, it, the contrast there plays into this, and also his comments about feeling like the company is naked and they're just wide open because there's nothing to hide them, and how exposed they are, and therefore, you know, their whole mission is supposed to be secret, and yet, how are you supposed to stay, stay secret if you're just visible to everybody because there's no cover? So... Everything about this passage and the contrast between the two sides calls forth so many different things about the land itself. It's just really fascinating. Here's a smaller example that is, to me, still very interesting because of the word choices. And it's just a really good example of how Tolkien can evoke really interesting things with relatively few words. Frodo and Sam are in Athelion, and they come across a basin made of stone. And it says, Presently it brought them to a small clear lake in a shallow dell. It lay in the broken ruins of an ancient stone basin, the carven rim of which was almost wholly covered with mosses and rose brambles. Iris swords, now what he means there is the irises look like swords, not that they're actually swords, obviously. Iris swords stood in ranks about it, and water lily leaves floated on its dark, gently rippling surface, but it was deep and fresh and spilled over ever softly out of it's, and spilled ever softly out over a stony lip at the far end. Now, the, the words that I really pay attention to here are the iris swords stood in ranks and water lily leaves floated on its dark, gently rippling surface. I find this fascinating because it's almost like the irises are standing guard while the water lilies are bathing. And this is particularly interesting because the last time we really got a lot about water lilies, it was because Tom Bombadil was collecting them to give to Goldberry. And so water lilies already have kind of this river woman, you know, river spirit connotation, like they're associated with the river woman's daughter. And so it's almost like we're getting that repeated here, and Goldberry is you know, in some way present in this lake, and she's being guarded by ranks of soldiers in the form of irises, which is just a really cool image. It doesn't really do a whole lot, except for the fact that it 
evokes really interesting ideas, and it also tells us a little bit about Ithilien in a way that we haven't gotten other than to have it explained to us that there's lots of herbs and aromatics around because Gollum starts puking and Frodo and Sam are like, ah, you know, after all that they've been through, you know, the Immanuel, the dead marshes and even the brown lands before that, you know, they're like, this is, this is more like Hobbit country, <laughs> but entering Athelion, it's a really nice place. And then this is almost like a callback to civilization. You know, you have stalwart soldiers guarding, you know, the fair ladies who were bathing in the water against who knows what might be out there. But it's like, it's just such a cool, weird personification. I couldn't leave it out of this list. I accidentally did skip over. I put my notes in the wrong order. But going back a little ways, before we get to Athelion, Frodo and Sam, of course, approach the Black Gate. And Aragorn and his army will later do this, but here we get a much more vivid description of the territory when Frodo and Sam get there. For two more nights they struggled on through the weary, pathless land. The air, as it seemed to them, grew harsh and filled with a bitter reek that caught their breath and parched their mouths. At last, on the fifth morning, since they took the road with Gollum, they halted once more. Before them, dark in the dawn, the great mountains reached up to roofs of smoke and cloud. Out from their feet were flung huge buttresses and broken hills that were now at their nearest, scarce a dozen miles away. Frodo looked round in horror. Dreadful as the dead marshes had been and the arid moors of the no-man lands, more loathsome far was the country that the crawling day now slowly unveiled to his shrinking eyes. I mean, the, Tolkien is just building the suspense here. <laughs> the way he's describing Frodo's reaction to it even is just like preparing you for the worst. Even to the mirror of dead faces, some haggard phantom of Green Spring would come. And here, of course, he's referring to the, the dead marshes where he looked in the pool and he saw the, the faces of people who had died in the dead marshes. And that's a really interesting thing itself. Some haggard phantom of Green Spring would come and the dead marshes... It would be green, it would be like the ghost of spring, which is itself a really interesting personification. But here, neither spring nor summer would ever come again. Here, nothing lived, not even the leprous growths that feed on rottenness. The gasping pools were choked with ash and crawling muds, sickly white and gray, as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. So here we get some really strong personification because he's talking about the mountains as if they have literally puked their guts out into these pools and now it's just like ash gray slime that's just and it's crawling mud. You know, the mud is crawling. It's not just stagnant there. It's you know, it's if you really think about it, it is pretty disgusting and you can see why Frodo has the reaction he does. High mounds of crushed and powdered rock, great cones of earth, fire-blasted and poison-stained, stood like obscene an obscene graveyard in endless rows, slowly revealed in the reluctant light. They had come to the desolation that lay before Mordor, the lasting monument to the dark labor of its slaves that should endure when all their purposes were made void, a land defiled, diseased beyond all healing, unless the great sea should enter it and wash it with oblivion. I feel sick, said Sam. Frodo did not speak. And you can totally understand Sam's reaction here. The description we get, it makes, it almost makes you feel sick because it's, it's so vivid and it's all this 
talk about the way that it looks is like the land is dead. And it's not just dead, it is rotten to the core. It is, it's like a corpse of land that is just disgusting. But it's not a corpse that has anything growing on it. There's no, you know, there's no bacteria feeding on it. There's no worms feeding on it. It's just dead and absolutely disgusting. So this one is a really vivid example that, again, stands in really stark contrast to what we got in Athelion. And that's one of the interesting things about the way Tolkien does this. We will very often get these contrasts, not always in the same pages like we did with the Brownlands and Rohan, but you will get lots of different kinds of contrasts. And here, you know, after they leave here, they enter into Athelion, and that's, you know, the stark contrast between the two plays up the the sheer descriptiveness of both because you go from one to the other and it makes the each makes the other seem even more extreme than it is, which <clears throat> they both are pretty extreme to begin with. Finally, we get a description of Mount Doom itself. Still far away, 40 miles at least, they saw Mount Doom. Its feet, there's some personification, founded in ashen ruin, its huge cone rising to a great height where its reeking head, there's another one, was swathed in cloud. Swathed in cloud. There's that, that also is, it's almost like it's got a funeral shroud around its head or something. Its fires were now dimmed and it stood in smoldering slumber. It stood in slumber. Again, like all of these words you could apply to an actual person. Mount Doom is one of the most personified pieces of landscape in this story. As threatening and dangerous as a sleeping beast. And there we go. I mean, that's, he's directly comparing it to a living animal. Behind it there hung a, a vast shadow, ominous as a thundercloud. The veils of Baradur that was, was reared far away upon a long spur of the ashen mountains thrust down from the north. And so this description of Mount Doom, we, we get this image as if Mount Doom is a person who is, or a beast, that is sleeping vast, powerful, and threatening, which at any moment could awake and wreak havoc or, you know, and literally just erupt. But the point being, Mount Doom is described in such a way as to make it sound like a living thing which is capable of, you know, exploding in anger, not just literally exploding in a, you know, volcanic fit, but, you know, exploding in a metaphorical sense of being angry and therefore it's going to vent its frustration. And yes, I am choosing words that it's not puns, it's plays on words, but that is what Tolkien is doing here. Tolkien, I mean, volcanoes do vent, right? They, that's what they do. But, I mean, that's the cool thing that Tolkien is doing here. He is taking all of these ideas and making them into a giant metaphor for, you know, what Mount Doom is and represents. So, all these different passages show us that you know, Middle-earth is not just some backdrop in which the story happens. It is very much a character in the story. And that is, as I said before, many other people have pointed this out, but it bears looking at these passages to understand in, in what way Tolkien thought about, you know, Middle-earth and, by analogy, our Earth. Because that is a lot of how he thinks about nature. It is... 
you know, kind of a thing to itself, and it deserves to have a lot of its own focus. It, you know, he, that's why he loved trees so much, and why he thought about nature the way he did, and why he opposed industrialization. This bleeds through the story so much if you really pay attention when he starts describing landscapes. And like I said, there are many other passages. So the next time you're reading Lord of the Rings, pay attention to passages like these, and you can really get a good understanding of how Tolkien thinks about nature and why it's so important to him. Nature is almost a person, you know, in Tolkien's mind. So if you can come up with, you know, if you think I've left out really good examples that you wish I'd included here, you know, put those in the comments below. Let me know what you think about some of the ones I've put in here and which ones you like and why. Otherwise, you know, if you like this, please do give it a thumbs up, share it around. If you want to catch my future videos, make sure you subscribe. And if you're on YouTube, click that bell icon to make sure you don't miss any. Check the description below for all my alternative platform links and social links. On Twitter, of course, I drop Tolkien-related trivia questions every week. And you can also find support links in the description as well. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all the supporters of the channel, especially Elf Friends, PA Brew News, Nathan Dufour, and Paul Leone.